Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson, joined by co-host Terry Robinson. Today, we are bringing you another episode of Tomes of Magic, where we look at the Sorcerer's Crusade, and we have had so many people asking us, Terry, Adam, please... For the love of Pete, when are you guys going to finally talk about the Order of Reason? It's like, okay, okay, granted, we've done a lot of episodes on the Sorcerer's Crusade. We haven't really given you much material on the Order of Reason. But today is your day. We are totally going to talk about the Order of Reason because today's book is the Order of Reason. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, Terry, are there any announcements for us? I guess the only announcement I have is that there are a number of people that absolutely loathe this book. And I just wanted to say, that's fine. We can have a difference of opinion and we can have a respectful um, way of settling this war of paradigms. Towards that end, today at City Hall at noon, I will be taking all oncomers um, as to whether or not this book is good. The problem with that that I fully recognize is the fact that this episode is going to go out roughly one month after I will be at City Hall at noon. So unless you have access to Time 2 as a true Mage fan, you won't be there, and I will presume that my opinion is correct. So I have put that out into the world. Otherwise, I have no, I have no announcements. Terry, I was going to pick that argument apart, but logically, it works surprisingly well, so I can't. Okay, I guess we're just going to have to keep going. Were there any other announcements? Nope. Okay, well, this book is titled The Order of Reason. It came out in 2001. We have writers Brian Campbell with fiction from our Sabrina Udell, who did the development for this. It clocks in at 159 pages, and it claims to be the book that focuses on the order of reason as a group to bring us uh, new material about them. And uh, one of the claims the book makes is, finally, we're going to list and describe all those guilds you've been hearing about as passing references in previous books. And so today we are totally going to hear about them. So, Terry, can you start off the walkthrough? I will be glad to. As I sometimes do for these books... I have come up with alternate titles, and I have three. One is High Guild vs. Craftsmasons. Go! The second one is Do Not Mess With Me or I Will Revolution Your Ass. And the third is Order of Reason. My name is Brian Campbell. I invented the technocracy. Do not F with me. We open with Prelude Fiction, which is a girl who looks with special eyes and finds life on a canal. There are huge-ass margins and I have no idea why. The High Guild crest looks like a bird holding an air horn, but it's a scroll and a candle, and it really looks like the bird is going, F, you're going to get rich, which I really like. But yeah, it's an opening story of a girl that is or is not going to get married. And then the section ends, or alternatively, the introduction section begins with a watercolor-ish, pencil-ish illustration on seemingly Bristol board. And when I saw that, I'm like, mm, is this one of the books where they cheaped out on the art and they had a good person do it, but stop at the sketch phase? And I think the answer is yes. But anyway, what did you think about the prelude, Adam? It was a typical example of uh, the high guild um, being manipulative, high guild sorts of, of people. And so I guess that that fits. Uh, the uncle says to the impressionable young girl, um, I don't want to marry this old guy. Yeah, well, if you do, there's benefits. So just play along and uh, you'll be glad in the end. And it, it, it hints that he's sort of using his influence on, on her, his own niece. And, uh, and it works because the high guild gets what it wants, apparently. So uh, yeah, I'm ready for the intro. The introduction, The Ascent of Daedalus, 
kind of sets out the premises of what this is going to be. We find out that the world is changing, but only so much and that it is scary. One of the things this book repeatedly tries to do is say, hey, this is kind of where the limit of vain versus coincidental is. It says that most visionary, creative, and inspired people in Renaissance Europe are kind of drawn towards the order of reason and that they believe with enough creativity and insight, the visionary can dream the impossible and make it reality. Order members don't see what they do as supernatural. Modern mages convince others what they're doing is not magic, but Dedalians have convinced themselves. And that's kind of the premise that this book is going to run with. And it specifically says, hey, we are taking a pretty sharp departure from how things have been presented in previous mage books and basically says Dedalians of the Outer Labyrinth, which is to say Order of Reason members with an arete of one, two, or three and an enlightenment of one, two, or three, never perform vain magic. They never do vulgar magic, as we would call it in modern parlance. And that is a big change. And that paragraph, if you're along for the ride, thumbs up. This is the book for you. If you fight that premise tooth and claw, then this is going to be a hard read for you. I got on board and was largely fine with it. And then it lays out what's going to be in the rest of the book. What did you think of the introduction? Well, in the introduction, we get some terms that are actually very important for understanding material in the rest of the book. Erite going from one to five, we have initiates, mediators, resplendents, and these are order of reason mages in the outer labyrinth, while you know four and five adepts and masters are the inner labyrinth of the order of reason. And so, yeah, once once you get those terms down, the rest of the book it becomes easier to take in. I saw this this real um, what I call it the mage modern view that uh, reason mages really think they aren't mages and that they they're not doing anything supernatural. And as Terry just said, that's a new way to look at Order of Reason mages in Sorcerer's Crusade. So how about chapter one? Chapter one, The Outer Labyrinth. Someone is invited to a luncheon. It then goes on after the introductory fiction to talk about how the Order of Reason is vast and secretive, that a lot of people in it are not aware of its full extent, and that is on purpose. And a recurring theme that is also mentioned throughout this is... In contrast to M20, where we have Tisful, the technocracy is for life, this is the opposite. This is like the order of reason, one weekend a month, two weeks a year, something like that, where it's like you could be a part-time Dedalian. I, at some point, got tired of saying Dedalian and started using the term reasonist, which is stupid. But if I use it, please know that that's what I mean. So each convention has its own orders, but within the order as a whole, they all share the ranks that Adam had mentioned. Initiates have Arite 1, Mediators have Arite 2, Resplendents have Arite 3, Adepts have Arite 4, Masters have Arite 5. The book kind of suggests that there aren't really people with higher Arite running around for some reason, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if that represented a different view of how the Enlightenment or Arite stat would work, or alternatively, if the author is just like, what do you mean? People are just going to increase their spheres along with their Arite. You're not going to have a character with Arite 7 with their highest dot being sphere level 4. It uses a bunch of other terms to kind of refer to collections, with uh, Cabal being the basic group of outer labyrinth mages or Dedalians that have been assembled, and that they tend to be an equal mix of initiates, mediators, 
and resplendence, and within it, each of them have their own job. So initiates, when not being guided, can do as they please. They tend to observe. Uh, mediators are supervising brethren, which is to say unenlightened or unawakened members, as well as initiates, and they keep the group organized. Uh, mediators keep the cabal running smoothly, and they attend to day-to-day -day affairs. The resplendence think they've mastered the basic mysteries of the order. They set agendas, and they tend to be more exploratory. Then we have a section talking about the types of cabals that you have. So a conventional cabal is all taken from the same convention, one of the basic subdivisions within the order of reason. Others have internal functions that are similar to what other groups do, and it is useful as sometimes conventions are at odds. So even if you are not a member of the Kosians, if you're a member of the uh, the Craft Masons or the Explorators or something, you may have a group that is dedicated towards patching up people who've gotten busted up in the war for reality. And even if, as I said, you're not a member of the Kosians, you may have this cabal that, that specializes in medicine, for instance. We then get the idea of lodge cabals, where a lodge is the location. It is the chantry. It is the covenant. A average size lodge is going to have three to four cabals and that they tend to join in a particular order. The uh, lodge is founded and then one is kind of set up to kind of internally administer the lodge. Another one will try and accumulate as much information as possible about the local area. Another one will start advancing the agenda of the order of reason and another one may attend to its interactions with other groups. So it tends to be mundane activity, then the business of the lodge, then defense, then exploration. Then you have cooperative cabals, which are alliances of disparate Dedalians under a, a sponsor of some sort. This section felt fuzzy to me. I don't feel as if it was particularly well described. It is approached again later within the text, but I don't feel I have a real strong handle on how those different types work. Some examples I think would have been useful. The next section we have is on patronage, that cabals usually are put together by someone who has assembled them. Patronage opens you up to direct scrutiny, but gives you access to significant resources frequently. Adepts are the most common patrons, that is, Dedalians with a retail of four. They help uphold the ideas of the order long enough to have access to resources. Major cities will tend to contain three to four adepts, and adepts are competing with each other to get the service of a cabal or lodge and are vying with other adepts. You get the idea that from the ground level, when your resplendence initiates and mediators are looking up, they see the adepts as kind of the head of the order of reason. Masters are above the adepts, Arite 5, and are more political and don't concern themselves generally with mundane affairs. They tend to roll around in conspiracies. They may act as the head of a personal spy network causing intrigue. Masters tend to be distant, and there are more lodges than there are adepts, which gives you an idea of kind of how many Arite 1, 2, and 3 Order of Reason members there are running around. This is a case where once you get past Arite 3, each additional level is significantly smaller than the one before. In addition, we've talked about the levels of Resplendent, Mediator, and Initiate. In addition to that, each convention has 20 honori that oversee a region of interest. Generally, two at least are located outside of Europe. Number of honori outside of Europe is growing generally as the age of exploration dawns. The Resplendent Maximi lead the conventions and are distant and rarely seen. Both the Celestial Masters and Seekers only have one, the Caserify seemingly have none, and all other have two, one that is generally male and one that is female. 
we get a little bit more information on how Lodge and Lodge Cabals work. Lodges are useful within the order because they are secluded places to work. Some sort of magistrate oversees day-to-day affairs. Those who avail themselves of the service may be called upon for special tasks. Additionally, a lodge cabal, one of the types of cabals mentioned, will have access to China of the general resources of the lodge. Lodges are supposed to be for all, but frequently become tools for politics as members are pitted against each other. Traveling groups of reason mages are heavily recruited to upend the balance of power because now suddenly you can have other people within your group that are coming in that can can become a tool for an adept or something to kind of uh, settle a score or or gain power compared to one of their uh, compatriots. It also indicates in this aside that Scourge was invented after the wild use of disparate magic after the fall of Mistridge. The Order wants to put the tools in the hands of commoners to solve problems rather than depending on supernatural methods of solving it, which they believe ultimately caused this Scourge thing that has been problematic. And again, we get a reminder that the Order of Reason is not everywhere. It doesn't control everything. They have extensive conspiracies which are influential but not all-powerful and Order membership is not totalizing. We then get some recommendations on how to use guild membership. And it mentions that not all Order of Reason members are part of a guild. That this generally doesn't happen. That you don't formally join a guild until you've accumulated some power and done something of note. That guild halls are small and hidden. You may call on others to aid you. That they act as a support network. So this suggests that you have lodges which are running around. Guild halls that are running around. As well as people who are not members of a specific guild. I don't know if this is to mean that one can be a member of the Kosians without being a member of one of the Kosian guilds, or to say that there are just generic order of reason mages running around out there. We then get some information on initiation and enlightenment, how it works. The brethren are the unawakened, and after a time of dedicated service, they will be taken care of. You more or less get a pension. They often back secret societies, that is to say the order of reason, and use those as ways of recruiting. These very much differ by conventions. It talks about how enlightenment, that that there is a moment of insight that comes and something is made clear. The worker may see that their work improved as if inspired. This vision is unique and generally personal. There is also then a critical period where they can be wooed into mystical work if not recruited. And Adept is charged of periodically reviewing brethren to see if any are showing signs of awakening. It also talks about that there are magics to determine if someone else has awakened, but they tend to be time-consuming and take appropriate interpersonal inquiry. We also get the idea that Dedalians avoid kindling their daemons, that they view the embodiments of their avatar as being kind of a thing that can pull you away from the path of reason. It also suggests that the flash of enlightenment you get is not quite the same as your first dot of a rite, that you kind of have a zeroth dot, which explains why they talk about some people having been directly indoctrinated into the outer mysteries and other people's having been recruited. All groups have some mixture of schooling, tutoring, and apprenticeship, with schooling being you go to some sort of public institution with mortals, tutoring being one-on-one, and being scholastic, and apprenticeship being you you learn on the job with someone. Uh, Women generally are tutored as female students aren't always accepted in places of higher learning, especially around the world. The Caserify are the notable exception, who are recruited by an adept directly, and basically given a up-or-out series of increasingly difficult tests which ultimately results in them becoming a resplendent or dying. 
this was a little bit bothersome because I don't feel like this matched the information we got in Swashbuckler's handbook. This book tends to have a slightly different presentation of the Caserify than what we've gotten before, which is fine. It's just does not resonate with it. Later on, the differences get a little bit more papered over, but for here, it was kind of jarring reading this. It also gives a few kind of general reminders that the Order of Reason is not continually at war with the traditions, nor does it want to kill all of them. The Order of Reason doesn't want to destroy everything it doesn't understand, and that it has no absolute stance on the supernatural. They also mention that their control of reality is by no means limitless, and they cannot even approach what their 21st century compatriots do. The Masters and Maximi have powers that they don't want us to see, and then the chapter more or less ends. This chapter gives me the idea that the power of the Order is its ability to move resources around, that it is generally cooperative, and that philosophically everyone is at least, if not on the same page, at least in the same chapter. The groups within the Order of Reason are also more ready to take advantage of changes in the world in a way that the traditions aren't. So a little bit of muddled thinking in this chapter in some cases where I wasn't quite following what the author was saying, but enough for me to start. A lot of the material is heavily geared towards, okay, so what do relationships within the order of reason look like? What are some of the plots that can come out of it? And it seemed very gameable in that regard. It seems like at this point, if you're going to run an order of reason game, that you're going to have an extensive list of contacts and a pretty large network, or the game will be about accruing those, kind of in contrast to what may happen in a traditional game at the point. Uh, what do you think of chapter one, Adam? It gives uh, early in the chapter these uh, titles, and it says that certain titles are going to belong to a Order of Reason mage who may be a magistrate of a lodge. This assumes a large number of mages, which was also an assumption during Revised Edition, which, which was the time this came out. So I would not necessarily assume that there's enough mages around in the Order of Reason to fill all those slots. So I would not be surprised if uh, some lodges, especially you know, those in remote areas, would have someone running it who had a, a lower title. So, I mean, if I was going to use this material, I would not hold so tightly to that distribution of titles. It talks about the Lodge Cabal and how this is a great idea. And, and I agree, this the Lodge-focused game is a very good game if you want to focus on one city. I think there are generally two vague approaches to running Mage. One is we're going to go from location to location and see a lot of interesting places. The other is we're going to focus on one location, but we're going to make it a large rich, intricate uh, setting. Oh, you know, we're going to take the city of Prague and show you just all the amazing things that are going on here that you didn't see. So if you want to focus on one city and keep your mages there, then the Lodge Cabal is a great way to do that. On page 30, there's a sidebar that I just disagree with the increase of Scourge followed so quickly after the fall of Mistridge that it was noticed that easily. Also, the clearly understood paradigm engineering of using supernatural forces away from the cities of Europe, I think is too rushed in terms of the timeline. Uh, I think a, a full acknowledgement of this dynamic is more appropriate to a later era, like maybe the late 1600s or the 1700s. So that, that just seemed out of place to me. Uh, page 31, quote, Most Daedalians do not work for the Order's goals around the clock. They do, after all, have lives outside of the lodges they support, end quote. Uh, this really reinforces revised editions dictate that mages must keep up a mundane life. They cannot just be mages. And this, this was emphasized very strongly in revised edition. In first and second edition mage, this was not really a thing. This chapter ends with a guild cheat sheet, which is a, a list of the conventions and the guilds within them. And this is a good idea, but it was not handled well because um, 
All of the titles listed there have the same indentation. They have the same font size. They have the same, you know, uh, it's regular type. It's basically this long list of names and they all kind of blend together. I mean, if some could have been indented or, or with bold type or large type, then, then I could use that as a uh, guild cheat sheet. But as it is, I look at it and it's like, I, I just get lost and I have to like start putting my finger down to mark the conventions. And it's like, okay, nice idea. Poor execution. That is the but, first uh, layer of the labyrinth, Adam. <laughs> I, I guess I washed out right at the start. What can I say? <laughs> but uh, let's look at chapter two. Chapter two is entitled Enlightened Arts and Outer Mysteries. We get a different framework for capital R reason that generates what is essentially a retail roles that powers rotes, but that isn't the framing. These are known as outer mysteries, and they are not used outside the lab necessarily. The fix the fact that entropy as a word didn't come into common use until much, much later, and here they rename the sphere fortune. It reminds us again of the casual rule that no vain magic can be done by anyone unless they have Narite above three. We get a quick run through of what you can do at each sphere level using the different spheres. That connection, we get very accurate measurement followed by extended senses, followed by dramatically reduced travel time for fortune. You get a strong hunch, then you can fake luck, and then you can perceive or act on weak points of an object in forces. You can interpret the elements, you can raise or lower their presence, and above that, you can greatly magnify forces or change them. So basically, it is a strict subset of what you can do. These kind of follow what the dot one, two, and three, I didn't notice immediately what the differences were. I think one of the oddest ones was spirit three is like, you can get lost in a useful accidental way. Normally spirit three would let you step sideways, but here they're just kind of like, <laughs> so this is a world though, where that there are still a lot of shallowings and regios where you can accidentally stumble into it. And it kind of suggests like, maybe you're better at finding those and stumbling into it than most people. Time three I've listed as fast, but not too fast. We then get a lengthy section that basically says, hey, a lot of these things are mundane in terms of what the character can do, like a normal mortal would be able to do this. And they say there are kind of three sets of roles that you can wind up making. One is perception plus alertness to notice if something is mundane. One is perception plus awareness behind closed doors to figure out what something is at a deeper level or alternatively uh, perception plus occult and that at occult four, the difficulty drops by one. And then you have an arete role, which is far more influential and powerful. And the phrasing the and setup that the book uses is basically, if you're going to risk scourge, you have to have a huge upside to it. So we get the idea that arete dice success can add dice to mundane rolls, but no more than 10 in total unless you're a master. So you can do an arete roll that will give you additional dice on a mundane trait plus trait roll up to a maximum pool of 10 unless you're a master. It also mentions that for one or two arete successes, that is the equivalent of three to five mundane successes. This is somewhat bothersome because later on in the more or less rote section, it is not uncommon that they say that you need three to five arete successes to have a particular effect occur that still felt mundane. I also feel like they dropped the ball in terms of giving like ritual rules 
and recommendations for that because again if you're dealing with a character with a retail one or two and you want them to get four successes you're going to have to do an extended ritual but at least it sets up that framework of hey how do i differentiate between the effect of an arete roll and, and a mundane skill roll and the big takeaway is that the arete roll is vastly more influential which i like we also get the idea that the Dalians get one focus per sphere which gives them minus one towards difficulties so this sets up another thing where Dedalians at lower levels can't do as many things, but their usage of specialized foci will vastly reduce the difficulty of what they are trying to do. Now, in other cases, we do have the idea of personalized and unique instruments, but here it is neither of those. You have a personalized focus for every sphere as opposed to just one and it being your affinity sphere. We also get kind of either a new or clarified understanding of what fast casting is, which is to say a lot of the things Dalians do is they make an arete roll to influence an attribute plus ability roll or vice versa. Fast casting is where you do both at the same time and you do it at plus two difficulty. And you're like, okay, that, that is a useful way of, of, of saving time in exchange for increased difficulty. So if you wind up doing preparation to ultimately do an effect and you wind up using the specialized focus for your sphere, it comes out to a net plus one and you can do some pretty potent things pretty quickly. We then get a run through of the various magical mechanics that a Dedalian will encounter and kind of their view of things. And this I thought was great. The demon is seen as a temptation offering sorcery, which the reasonist must decline. Still, the daemon will periodically call for adventure, and the Order of Reason member will be like, yeah, yeah you should probably do that. <laughs> we get a bunch of different interpretations of what Scourge could be. It could be viewed as a vengeful force, a personal force, a cultural force, a sign of God's displeasure, simple bad luck, or some sort of supernatural danger. It also posits the idea that instead of Scourge, there could be story complications. I love this too. There is no requirement that when a character incurs scourge or botches that the botch necessarily has to be because the character is an idiot and has to affect the thing they just did then. One day I will do an episode on Terry's five-part hierarchy of interpretations of the botch rule, but more or less it's taking the interpretation that scourge is eventually something that sets back your character's immediate goal needs to happen. And that can be an accumulation of points of scourge, or it can occur at an almost metatextual basis of something unrelated happening happens elsewhere that impinges your character. The text also spends a fair amount of time saying, so what does a Dedalian view meditation as? This process normally where you would go into a quiet spot and ponder the universe and let its powers run through you and you regain quintessence. Here it says it could be done by studying an undisturbed privacy. It could be because you made a discovery of some sort. You could be because you found a mystical location that challenges your belief. It could be because you saw a great wonder or work of technological power for the first time. And I like the idea of interpreting this that a Order of Reason mage, the first time they see a technical breakthrough, will literally get quintessence from it. And what partially fueled the rise of the Order of Reason is you have this network of mages moving around the world, constantly seeing great works, constantly freeing up quintessence in these moments of inspiration, which allow them to go home to their own laboratory lodges and guild houses to make new discoveries, rolling the ball forward. In the modern era, these things have gotten so specialized and we have gotten so kind of inured to their benefit that we no longer get that. Yes, seeing the the first true ionic engine or something that was used to readjust the cop may be great, but that's only to a small subset of the void engineers. But in this era, everyone can kind of still know 
everything. And to me, that both explains kind of the status of things in the 21st century, as well as maybe why the order of reason really got off to a bang as there was just this flood of quintessence from people inspiring each other. Overall, this chapter really brings home how some subtle rules changes change the game. I also get the sense that the author presumes that you are likely to start at Arite 3, spend a little bit of time doing the you can't do vein magic, and then quickly join the inner labyrinth or maybe Arite 2. As I mentioned, I like this chain reaction from seeing other bits of technological progress. We don't really see the mystical side of the Caserify, which I feel like is a loss. That information is in Swashbuckler's handbook, but it would be nice if all of those things were kind of under one roof. One of the things that kind of plagues Sorcerer's Crusade is some topics are multiply covered while others are completely ignored. It is weird that like a single convention is seemingly covered in two or three books and we just never get any information about the Explorators, Kosians, Void Seekers, and so on. So that brings a close to chapter two. Adam, what did you think of chapter two? Yeah, there was, there was a lot in Chapter 2. The instructions on handling Order of Reason Mage con- conflicts with previous Sorcerer's Crusade books. So if uh, you know, my point of view is if you want to change the Order of Reason that much, it's better to declare a new addition to the game and do it there. I mean, changing things that much is going to be hard for people who just coming to Sorcerer's Crusade because they read one book, it's like, okay, I get it. And then they read another book, whoa, this is all different. How do I, how, how do I square this? So... I think it's just nice to declare a new edition and say, okay, now we're doing everything different and you know it. I have a harder time with mages who don't know they are mages. Awakening is a big deal. It shakes up your world. I can't accept someone telling a new mage to ignore their own awakening. So that that was just struck me right out of left field. It's a really weird thing uh, early in this chapter. Page 43, Daedalian's results may take longer to achieve, but they also have the appearance of commonality, making them more accepted, end quote. This is not correct. Mystic and faith magic is also accepted in the Renaissance. This book forgets that the faith of the Gabrielites and the common people is part of the Order of Reason. Uh, Also, uh, same page. He can only openly display all his practices without eliciting suspicion or investigation, end quote. Uh, Previous Sorcerer's Crusade books stated reason mages cannot do this. Their sciences do elicit suspicion and investigation. So again, this book changes the approach to the order of reason so dramatically that it, it's it's like a new addition to the game. Page 44, because the power curve is also taken down a bit by this limitation, characters who have more mundane skills and fewer dots of erite are not at a distinct disadvantage. Hello, revised edition. I see you trying to hide behind the curtain there. Same page. If you're playing in an order of reason chronicle, then you'll definitely need more details from the data Leon's perspective. No, I, I don't, actually. I was doing fine already. I hate it when an author tells me I need something I don't need. Page 48, talking about the prime sphere, quote, at the storyteller's option, he may decide to not allow characters with this sphere, end quote. The author knows the prime sphere punches holes in his new version of the game, so hey, take it out completely. Same page, these initiates may doubt their own sanity. No, I don't think they would. Renaissance society has taught them magic is real. When they perceive it, it reinforces their cultural beliefs. This is 21st century culture being forced onto Renaissance people, and it it just doesn't fit for me. This chapter is new magic rules for the new game they want us to play. Substituting erite roles for mundane skill roles, it sounds confusing to me. I'm not enthusiastic with this. It, it is such a reworking of the game mechanics that I think is uh, it's going to be confusing, and I just don't think it's necessary. I, I don't see what it accomplishes that's going to help me. But uh, on to chapter three. Chapter three is entitled Dedalian Effects. 
And the opening is more or less, hey, this is a list of things, but remember your mages. This isn't vampire. You can do different stuff, which I liked because it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, these are still spheres, even if it's based on just giving you a lot of examples. We then get a list of specific effects. Um, and a lot of these are geared towards kind of an implied game that this game suggests that you will have, which is to say a group of lower level order of reason mages dealing with one or two superstitionists trying to suss out one or two disparates or tradition members. And it does a good job of setting up the idea that your group of opening Dedalians will be able to deal with it, but they're going to have to deal with it in a separate way and they're going to have to do it slowly. Seizing the Forgotten lets you deduce that magic stole something from you and who infiltration suggests that a road is harder if you don't have certain abilities. That's kind of a, a new idea that eventually will pop up again a couple times in Mage. Idealism is a fortune rote that gives you a bit of dumb luck. Examine the humors. I, I just thought it's like, hey, this guy keeps dabbing to take his blood. Yeah, turns out he's angry. And you're like, huh, no, didn't want to see that one coming. Trauma and Chirurgeon are two life rotes with Chirurgeon seemingly just being a bad version of trauma based on my reading of the rules. Dash and a pinch lets you make good food fast. Uh, really shows you that there are things that we call magic that other w would call science and that the definition of science is very period dependent. Like it's one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, of course this is all science. And then they'll have an aside on humors and alchemy. And you're like, oh, okay, this is where the, the magic science what are they kind of really comes into focus. We also get rules on pulling an all-nighter, which says that if you don't sleep for a day, all of your stamina, intelligence, and wits rolls are at plus three difficulty, which I don't think we had previously gotten. So this is useful when your characters need to pull an A-team montage and just create something wonderful out of nowhere. Ultimate argument is a way of persuading someone. And I think it's the first time I recall rolling against temporary willpower. There is also an aside that notes that clock towers raise the gauntlet by one, which I'm going to misinterpret as clocks raise the gauntlet by one. So I like the idea of two characters being like, meet me in, in the graveyard at the stroke of midnight between the, uh, when the barrier between worlds will actually be slightly thicker because of that clock. Flash of inspiration rules are cool. It is this idea that a storyteller can say, you could just kind of magic your way out of this, so I'm going to have you roll a retay and see what happens. We also get a wrote on hiding a secret message in a novel, which made me wonder, is there a secret message in this book? And the secret message appears to be, there's a different way to run the Order of Reason, but you may not like it, but we're finally giving you all the guilds, so deal with it. I don't know if that was a secret message. I may have only gotten one success on using that wrote, though. Uh, so, Adam, what did you think about Chapter 3, Dedalian Effects? <laughs> Yeah, um, I uh, I should probably let the listeners know that I did, in fact, sign a contract that requires me to pronounce every game term differently than uh, Terry. The contract said something about variety, so I, I guess that's what I add to the show. But <laughs> So when I say uh, Daedalian and he says Daedalian and the listener's like, which one's correct? It's like, that's a good wrong. question. Yeah. <laughs> I can't answer it. I can't answer that question, but it's a very good question. <laughs> when I was reading through this chapter, I was thinking, why are there 28 pages of order of reason rotes. I mean, the previous books give us so many order of reason rotes, and then it hit me. They want us to run the rules differently and portray the order of reason differently now, and so they give us all of these examples to show us what that difference looks like. And that is totally appropriate. In fact, that is 
in my book, a requirement. If you're going to show people a new way to look at this group and a new way to run the rules, then you need to give us some good examples. And they give us 28 pages of, of uh, rote examples. So if you want, if you like this new direction for the game that you see in this book, it is well supported and chapter three will help you do that at your own table. I don't like how some of these rotes push level two sphere effects down to level one. And I think they did this to sort of make up for the fact that Order of Reason mages are generally less flashy and less versatile with their effects than mystics are. But still, I, I like keeping the level two sphere effects at, at level two. It just, as, as a, a storyteller, it, it helps me keep everything together in my in my head when I'm running these games. There's a sidebar on, on page 81 talking about uh, Arate, and it says, an accurate determination of another mage's Arate and this isn't something I really want to be a regular part of my games. I, I like the fact that you can be around a mage and, and you have a, sort of a general understanding of how good he is at, at magic, but not an exact one. It almost feels like uh, they're giving us character classes. Your Arate level is your character class. That's It's odd for me. Page 90, we're told the craft masons brainwash their initiates. That was new to me. It, it kind of cast the group in a, in a different light, but... When I think about it, when I think about the past information I've read about the craft masons in, in uh, Sorcerer's Crusade books, I gotta say, it does kind of fit. It's, it's not a jarring difference. It, it's kind of like the missing piece of the puzzle uh, for me. So, I mean, the craft masons are, they are, are very, very uh, dedicated. They are very, uh, I don't want to say narrow-minded, but I mean, they, they are very, they feel very strongly about certain things and they really hammer it home again and again and again. And, and that's eventually why they have a falling out with the rest of the Order of Reason, and especially with the High Guild, is because they take very strong points on very specific issues and they really push it home. And it kind of makes sense that uh, bringing in their initiates, they're going to do a little mind magic to say, hey, look, uh, we're going to make sure you fit in here because we are not giving up these principles and these goals and we are going to use you to advance that. So even though it's new information, I got to say it fits. So let's take a look at Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is entitled The Inner Labyrinth. And this chapter goes on to kind of explain the mechanics of the Order of Reason outside of the kind of basic lodge structure. The Order is full of Byzantine conspiracies that members of the Outer Labyrinth can come upon. So the Order is full of Byzantine conspiracies, and members of the Outer Labyrinth can kind of stumble upon them or be used as chess pieces within it. If they want the Order to be just, the members of the Outer Labyrinth are going to need to overthrow these conspiracies and everyone claims that they're going to do that, but then they get a taste of power and the intrigue begins and that may not happen. We kind of get the idea that the idealistic, unless they watch their backs, are very quickly taken down or sent on missions that will never go anywhere. We get a bunch of dilemmas. This is another section where literally any formatting would have been great, that the order at this time is inclined towards revolution and no one agrees what kind of revolution or where or when. We also don't get a definition of what they mean by revolution. Is that just a figure of speech for when there's a sudden upset in power? Are they talking about mobilizing brethren to exact revenge on another group? Are they talking about a literal political revolution? Based on context, it can be kind of any of those, depending on the section. One of the basic questions is, regarding the usage of power, should they expand beyond Europe? Their amount of influence is limited. It suggests that they tried before and this didn't work. Give me information about those failed technocracy things. Like just the idea that in the same way that you had the March of the Nine that ended in Halal's betrayal, like 
what is that early group of Order of Reason mages who go to the Maghreb or the Levant or Cathay or the lands of Flint and it just fails? I want that information. The explorers have come to blows over this and the secret masters don't like it. The book goes back and forth on the usage of secret masters as a term suggesting that they are different than the Maximi. And that I found kind of confusing. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be a group within a group within a group, like that you have the notional heads, but then there's the real power center. The craft masons and the high guild are on opposite sides. The Gabrielites want to spread the gospel quite literally, but the Gabrielites are split as to how. The artificers, Caserify, and Kosians are on the sidelines. The celestial masters want to convince monarchies to do it for them, but the high guild does not want to show that the guilds are united, which brought up an interesting idea that mortals see these guilds doing things and may know of their existence, but not realize that they are all part of the same vast conspiracy. And I hadn't considered that before. They disagree on what to do with the supernatural. Should methods of controlling ghosts be done in the outer labyrinths, which is something the craft masons have apparently figured out. The Kosians worry about the risen, which is to say wraiths who've been able to reanimate a body. Uh, Gabrielites have a particular fear of the, the fair folk, which I like, what should we do about the traditions? It is generally the case that they evaluate it one by one. Some Gabrielites want to kill them all. Others want to team up with them to deal with the marauders and infernalists. And then they're like, how much should rely on Skywreckers, our awesome sky ships? It specifically says they are fast and not used for trade, but can literally cut years off a trip to a distant place. And I wish in the same way that we got void ships seven times throughout the modern editions, I wish we'd gotten a little bit more Skyrigger information on like what are encounters that Skyriggers have? What are the threats that they face and the systems for it? I would have liked that. We then get information about the Honorai and where each convention is at its most powerful. The High Guild is centered in Italy. The Craft Masons in France and Britain, the Artificers in the Holy Roman Empire and outside of Europe, the Kosians are evenly across Europe and include the Ottoman Empire, the Celestial Masters are focused in the Holy Roman Empire, the Explorators are mostly in Portugal, Arabia, Egypt, Cathay, and Islamic lands, the Gabrielites tend to be most powerful in the Papal States, Spain, and England, and the Caserify have mostly been in Eastern Europe since the fall of Constantinople. We get the idea that the Order of Reason has a couple different ways of enforcing its law internally, that the Maximi are responsible for policing internal affairs, which greatly changes what the Maximi need to do and makes the whole thing a bit more conspiratorial, that they have an opportunity to draw on information networks and personal favors, that the Maximi can act against their own convention unfettered, but if several are involved, it requires a vote of all 13. The Maximi do not direct investigation and they depend on what their subordinates tell them. And this felt like a very gameable thing that in this almost Phoenix Wright-like way that the Maximi, although quite capable, do not do the investigations themselves and are just depending on reading reports and such. They say the counterbalance to the Maximi's power is revolution, which occurs when a Maximi's dictate cannot be done. The High Guild has the most wealth, but the Craft Masons have the largest brotherhoods and and the most brethren, which can cause issues. And I would like to have a little more information again on what they mean by revolution. We then get information on the inner mysteries. At Arite 4, you can now do vein magic, which is no longer science. It can't be done publicly or you'll be punished. There's much debate over what 
these things you can do are and are not. And we then get the list of theses, which is to say, what are the supernatural things that you can do out of the public eye or in very rare circumstances in front of the public eye? And then we get a list for levels four and five for each of the spheres. Whether or not you are following these rules are generally interpreted by the Caserify, who act as the internal police covertly, and the Gabrielites, who do this work overtly. This presents the idea that science has more options for low dots effects than higher dot ones. I would have liked a little bit more information on what those higher levels can do. It also suggests that resplendents may notice that what is happening is beyond the normal. It seems like if any member of the order of reason in the outer labyrinth were to see some of these higher level effects, they'd be like, that's, that's not what you taught us <laughs> as opposed to it just being the uh, resplendence. Local rules can modify these theses and it suggests an interesting political game where it's like, well, in this area, this prime four effect of permanently enchanting things or alternatively, this ability is, is acceptable within it. And the Maximi and Honorai are kind of defending its usage there, so no one stops them. But you also run into the problem that if you're doing something special in your area, other people are going to want to know how to do it too. It reinforces that once you become an adept, you really need resources at your disposal to protect yourself, and that practices are local and someone can force your hand to start sharing things. So we get the idea that Trevenus has started summoning and controlling ghosts and other people view this as flat out sorcery while other people are like, no, tell us your secret ways to, to deal with ghosts. For the higher level effects, it encourages you to come up with stories to allow things to pass into the consensus. We get these higher level effects like temper via silicose, which is an effect to use a far seeing stone, which generates constant scourge, which requires constant confession to get rid of the scourge accumulated by the adepts that masters will have adepts send messages for them so that they are not the ones incurring scourge. And this just felt like Scientology where it's like, yeah, you need to be constantly sharing your innermost thoughts with us. Like, yes, tell me your secrets person who will one day attempt to usurp me. No, I will never use this information against you. We get a number of effects. Additionally, Odul's Ingenay, I thought was kind of interesting, which is a prime five attack effect, which just lets you create platonic forms in emulation, basically of matter two prime two. It is not allowed to be used outside of Navarre in France and is being protected by the Honoris. And I just kind of like that idea that there's an area where this is the only place where you can do this effect without people kind of bringing down the hammer. So suddenly you have an effect for a Dedalian, which is geographically limited with where if you do it, there may be political repercussions. We get the general rule also that Dedalians can emulate any technology that is going to exist within about 50 years. And it is interesting comparing what 50 years means in the Renaissance versus like now. So it is kind of amazing to be like, oh, in a more modern world, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we just invented the plane. 50 years from now, we're going to have nuclear devices. Where here it's like, okay, we just invented the split axle cart. 50 years from now, we will have a slightly improved split axle cart. Pace of change. We then get a, situa uh, a section called following the path, which kind of outlines the internal tension that we have the resplendents witnessing things that are not neatly explained. Every Dedalian has some sort of awakening. They recognize that this awakening is calling them to a world of magic, which they then more or less try and tame and ignore that the upper levels of the order are trying to make the world safe, but are pulled into quests for personal power and political gain. And it kind of seeds the idea that 
parts of the labyrinth may be corrupt and that the person telling you to do something may not be doing it for the greater good of the order or even just for personal gain, but to tie you up and to prevent you from hiding something. This is much more subtle than the insinuations that the technocracy in modern times has been infiltrated and controlled by the Nefandi, or even the traditions for that matter in some interpretations. In this chapter, the formatting again started to give way with things not being bolded or capitalized appropriately. The early sections clearly made out a map for play to allow for a certain kind of political game. And the section also starts to plant the seeds of the important aspect of the game of how do we know that we're the good guys. I thought all those were pretty good considerations. This is all necessary information that if you're going to run this game this way, but there's a lot of stuff. Adam, what did you think about chapter four? On page 96, it talks about how 350 years before the technocracy forms, the conditions that cause it to form are totally in action. And I, I think this is too soon. I, I don't think this is historically appropriate. The dilemmas section takes an interesting look at disagreements among the conventions. Terry mentioned that, and I, I, I thought this was good. Uh, here are some hot-button topics that the different conventions uh, disagree on and are trying to you know, sway other people into seeing a certain way, and some things that they just all totally dis- you know, they don't know what to think about. And so I, I thought that was well-placed uh, for this book. Page 104, the way the rules are written, the highest spheres favor sorcery, not science, end quote. Well, if you have no imagination, yes. If you have some imagination, no. (laughs) The adept and master effects tell us which is vain and which isn't. Now, up until this book, this was something that depended on circumstances. It was a storyteller call. It was something that the players may or may not have some input on. But here we're, we're seeing how uh, Revised Edition is taking a, a firmer hold here. And it's saying these are fain, these are uh, coincidental, and that's just how you're going to see it. But basically, yeah, those are my points for, for Chapter 4. Let's uh, take a look at Number 5. Number 5 is entitled The Hero Revealed, and it starts doing a thing in this chapter where it keeps referring to your characters as the heroes, which I don't know if it's tongue-in-cheek, I don't know if I missed it earlier in the book, but it felt real weird, especially when they're like, a true hero may get shot in the face 217 times by a new postmodern gun. You're like, hmm, that's an interesting definition of heroism. Heroism and uh, foolhardiness are separated by degrees of success. It redescribes the backgrounds for an order of reason member saying that the ones introduced in the core book are done through the lens of being a traditionalist. It indicates that allies can either represent the number of dots in a rite in one of your allies, the strength of a mundane ally, as well as be a traditionalist of some sort if you're comfortable having a dangerous ally. It completely reworks familiar, indicating that they may not know that their familiar is in any way supernatural or that you are good with a specific form of animal and that working with that animal over the course of a week can help you burn off scourge. So when you say, oh no, I'm a dog person, you really mean it. And I thought that was that was kind of interesting. Mentor can be rolled to help surface intrigue. Resources is indicated. They remind you that the Order of Reason is a part-time gig, so it's assumed that you have a job. So resources is kind of uh, additional money above that. It introduces an option to just have 27 dots in ability to not do the 13.95 that is used in other places. And then we get 30 guilds. Adam, guilds are groups. Adam does groups. Would you like us to tell, would you like to tell us about the 30 guilds? (laughs) Well, now that you mention it, I might as well say something. (laughs) (laughs) I dabble. (laughs) 
Groups within conventions are called guilds. This book describes the 34 guilds of the Order of Reason. Yes, 34. Pull up a seat and get comfortable, listeners. You're getting it with both barrels. Artificers have four guilds. Forgers, also called Vulcans, work mostly with metal and labor to create tools, inventions, and amazing machines. Their lodges are called forges and are in remote locations to allow more freedom and privacy to push the boundaries of what is acceptable. Before new members are allowed to work on new inventions, they must demonstrate skill in creating mundane items. Forgers are usually requested by other Daedalians to create equipment, but sometimes as demolition experts. Mauls, also called hammers, are the soldiers of the artificers. They are trained for loyalty to the artisans first. They protect artisan lodges, but also go into the field to protect valuable artisan assets. When not needed by the artisans, they hire themselves out to other conventions. Pythagori are scholars who specialize in math and a host of other academic subjects connected to practical matters like engineering and geology. They specialize in the prime sphere. Bright lions are alchemists, but rather than purifying their souls, they turn to practical matters. They are the skilled chemists of their day, creating acids, special fuels, and gunpowder. Celestial masters have three houses. Guilds are for commoners. House of Daedalus members are more focused on the order of reason than even their own convention. They are inculcated with the traditional values of royal society that the celestial masters are known for. Many travel in elite circles and often gain a patron's support so they can then attract a cabal of useful Daedalians to advance their plans. Others seek membership in active cabals of reason mages so they can travel. This house has some rivalry with the High Guild, who believes Daedalians should get their funding from the Order of Reason. House of Selene, also called the Cassandras, which factors into modern-day mage, pursue astrology and prophecy with noted accuracy. Some believe portents are not absolute and work to prevent them. House of Prometheus members study the skies and wish to distance themselves from the bustle of common Daedalian projects. They engage in rivalry with the House of Selene over notions of prophecy. Craft Masons have seven guilds, the Chalice and Chisel guild of artisans handbook aren't here stone guild is home to the builders buildings bridges viaducts etc are all handled by this guild scroll guild is the scholars of the convention tutors librarians historians and university lecturers are found here they hire out specialists to a variety of customers to advise on projects Coin Guild are the financiers and businessmen who take on projects the High Guild sees as too risky or undesirable. Coin members pay attention to the health of the community where their business operates. They are not as successful in their ventures as the High Guild, but they help many customers the High Guild consider unimportant. Sword Guild is the soldiers. Unlike other militant guilds, they are willing to lead unenlightened troops in battle. They take up causes others consider lost, protect the destitute, and put muscle behind their convention's concerns. Level Guild is not about carpentry, but politics. They keep a keen eye on Daedalian and sleeper political events. They are masters of organizing crowds of sleepers and manipulating revolutions. And again, as Terry mentioned, revolutions can be interpreted a few different ways. Uh, Hemlock Guild is the spies and masters of intrigue. They are not as skilled at it as the Kasirophi, but they have sleeper support and dedication. Rather than serve the order of reason, they serve their convention. Arrow Guild members are idealists who form cabals to help 
wherever commoners are suffering. They support themselves rather than seek patrons. High guild guilds were described in our last episode. There are six. The Royal Griffin Guild isn't mentioned here, probably an oversight. Kosians have three schools of thought and five houses. The schools of thought are approaches to medicine, but not real factions with leaders or acknowledged members. This book repeatedly mentions the Phylloxoi, who are a soldier guild. The Kosian section doesn't mention them. Uh, Galenists, also called elementalists, revere ancient knowledge from the Greeks and Romans. They seek to prove the validity of this knowledge. Paraclesians, also, also called alchemists, attack notions from antiquity such as the four elements. They search for alchemical explanations of disease. Vesalians, also called vivisectionists, learn medicine by examining human corpses. They are not popular. Now, those were the schools of thought. Now we're getting into actual uh, guilds. House of Knives are surgeons who face danger as field medics and also study in secluded universities. They serve members of other conventions when needed. House of Books are medical scholars. Many Galenists are here, so it's no surprise these Kosians study treatises from past ages. They hire their expertise out to those who can pay. Many reside in universities. House of Mandrake are experts in herbs, plants and agriculture, the source of many of their medicines. Uh, most are rural and get along quite well with the craft masons. Some even learn from the verbena, but do so quietly. House of Fire members focus on plagues and diseases. They take great risks to help the sick and gather new knowledge when plague strikes. House of Olympus specializes in alchemy and the matter sphere. It doesn't make clear what they try to do with their knowledge, so I was a bit disappointed in that uh, explanation. The Explorators have six guilds. Alexandrians travel mostly over land and in Europe. They cooperate with other conventions frequently to help them travel and succeed far from home. They have many linguists. Herculaneans seek adventure and difficulties to overcome. They travel far in these pursuits and like to join Daedalian cabals that travel far or oppose overwhelming odds. Guild of Forge and Sail specializes in shipbuilding. They also keep an eye on increasing their political influence so their goals won't be thwarted. Odysseans travel far from home and keep ships together while moving in the right direction. Order of the Grail explores unknown places and records what they learn. They are experts in navigation and cartography. They negotiate carefully with other conventions to benefit from their voyages. League of St. Paul help Gabrielites establish missions overseas. Some see this guild as a route to quick advancement as new lodges are established outside of Europe. The Kassirophi have no guilds and there is no Kassirophi. If you've heard that name, you're probably a conspiracy theory nut. <laughs> Cabal of Pierthought has three guilds with Italian names. I'm going to put on my best Italian. Terry is cringing. Illustrafattore, also called the illustrious, care about the plight of the common man and often work with craft masons to help commoners. They learn many things from the commoners that other Daedalians do not. Puenitenti, also called Doves of Christ, are a conspiracy within the Catholic Church that know of magic and the supernatural but keep their secrets. They pursue peaceful methods in all they do. They oppose supernatural evil, spread the gospel, teach, heal, and care for the craze of the Gabrielites. Venatores, also called Falcons of Gabriel, use harsh methods to fight sorcery, heresy, and the supernatural. They send members to supervise cabals of other Daedalians to prevent sorcery. Well, now that I've upset all our Italian listers, I'll share my thoughts on guilds. Uh, I thought this section seemed rushed. The longer guild descriptions in Swashbuckler's handbook were nicer for me. The Gabrielite guilds don't fit my vision of that convention, so I'd rewrite them for my own table. Uh, also, the differences between the two peaceful guilds and the Celestial Chorus seem small enough that they, they'd want to work together. Uh, for the Explorators, the Herculinian Guild seems pointless and extremely difficult to justify to other Daedalians, but, but it's exciting, so maybe it's fun just on that merit. But uh, back to you, Terry. 
The next section is on devices and kind of indicates to you that there are no owner's manuals. Activating a device is its level plus three versus the device's arete, and this creates some real small dice pools. Devices that botch with a lot of accumulated scourge may explode. If they have a lot of a lot of scourge, they may explode and do damage. Sometimes this is done tactically. We get no indication that there is a way to purposefully botch that I know of, but I feel like that would be appropriate to have a way to do that. I do like the idea of someone trying to purposefully botch, rolling for it, botching the attempted botching, and the device accidentally working perfectly. Uh, a number of items ranged from here are lenses to here are different lenses to a machine gun with very specific rules, to a kite, which is incredibly vulgar. Easily the most vulgar thing seemingly in this book is a kite. A kite so vulgar, the wings of Icarus, that you need another device to pilot the kite gooder called Ariadne's web. And uh, we get perfectly well-balanced arrows that you can shoot at people that are easily retrievable, but every time you automatically lose one, there's always that one that just like misses the target and gets buried in the haystack behind it or something. You're like, ah, we're, done. we're, not, getting, we're not getting our deposit back. We get liquid entropy that allows you to quickly dispose of a body. Quintessence here is represented not necessarily by mystic fuel. If I were to create a Sorcerer's Crusade drinking game, Abadanti's oil would clearly be on that list because I think yeah. it was brought up 1,200 times in this book. Oh, yeah. So Quint Juice. So these devices were fine. I thought they were going to be a little more imaginative. It does succumb to the fact that frequently they depend on systems that are highly device-specific that do not come out of the spheres that a device is theoretically using that would be fixed with Prime 4. So they are often flavorful, but I don't know how to get there from here. We then get character templates. These split the difference between character templates in the back of splat books and NPCs and additional storyteller characters in that we do not get stat blocks. We just get kind of some information on on spheres and worldview. And a lot of them, an annoying number of them are, I used to be dumb for this reason, but I felt this way about this thing. And then something weird happened. And I, it's, I'm just done with that. Oh, I'm sorry. This is me being a cynical uh, mage reader. Um, yeah, but you're so good at it. Yeah, so. thank you. <laughs> I have honed my cynicism to a fine blade. I'm like a Caserify, but for crap. Um, we get some notable order members. Give me information on the Maximi. They all seem so cool. We get more information on Jacob von Riesman, the balloons of... Sorcerer's Crusade in terms of the raw number of times it has come. Uh, he can project himself through the via silicos. He's never met in person, can project sound and light at great distance. We never get any more information on Jacob von Riesman and there's so many contradicting stories. My head cannon, fourth generation Ravnos. All of this is actually chemistry. He's just he's just messing with mages. We get more information on Arthur Trevenus, who likes to talk to the dead a lot, which is kind of a cool angle, but we have no information on like wraiths in this period, so they're like so ghosts. We also get information on on Elizabeth of Bolingbroke, who, whenever she goes somewhere, has at least two cases of personal affects, one containing her clothing, one containing hats. Tell me about the hats! I hope they're magical hats! Oh, boy. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> my my well-established fondness for hats and timelines, I think, <laughs> I think has been done. I, I would have liked more information, just more, because three of these people are high guild craft mason people, and then we get one other, and I would have just liked more. I think this we are now at the point where a couple of pages of one paragraph write-ups, I would have liked much less information on the character templates and much more information on adepts and masters. So you went through the process of changing how the order of reason works. Give me an idea of why people are afraid of these higher level people or the kind of conspiracies that they have working. Like give me one fully fleshed out conspiracy to run with as an example, beyond the obvious fact that Jacob von Riesman is actually a fourth generation Revenus. The chapter as a whole, again, a lot of good stuff. Adam commented on the, on the guilds and they brought up a lot of interesting oddities like you get to reroll tens for your affinity sphere i believe is new that is a different take on what the affinity sphere does we get the idea that there is a fight between the high guild and the house of daedalus i think because the high guild is annoyed that whenever someone says dedalian you have to say wait do you mean order of reason member or a member of the house of daedalus and they have to clarify every time and that's just kind of annoying so yeah we get the idea that the celestial masters seekers and explorators and in, in some way are kind of royalty and get their money from outside which the high guild doesn't like even though like every group kind of does it and it's I, I wish we had gotten more information on all those other groups there's a lot of guilds they overlap which makes sense you see how big the craft masons are i like the idea that, that you have the league of saint paul which more or less posits the idea that the easiest way to climb the political hierarchy is to go to an area that doesn't have it and set up your own we finally get information on the doves the conspiracy within the catholic church and i can see Dove kind of being a tongue-in-cheek descriptor, where it is like, yeah, they don't use the sword, they use the Catholic Church's sword instead. So like, <laughs> they themselves do not bloody their hands compared to the Falcons of the Gabrielites. Pythagoreans just kind of are like, do not mess with me, I will math the shit out of you. And as an actuary, I appreciate that as a group. Uh, I wanted to call the Alexandrians the Europeans. I'm angry at the Guild of Forge and Sail because it's the only guild with guild in its names. And it just seems like you could have just called it the Forge and Sail, which kind of makes it sound like a hipster bar or something like that. I get that, but come on. It was the only one. Anyway, I wish we also got information on who like leads the guilds. Like we have the idea of the Maximi, but I don't think we ever get information on how the guilds are led. Like, is this one of those things like in Wraith where you have the legions, which are based on how you die. And then you have the guilds based on what you do. And around this time you have the breaking of the guilds. I don't know what the infrastructure or power relationship is between the guilds and the rest of the order of reason. And I would have liked a little more information on that. We get a lot of new rules that don't quite fit with what we've gotten before. So it's real easy to miss something. They, they, they weave together an interesting tapestry. I think the devices are a little bit too unreliable and hard to use in a lot of cases, especially at the high level. So the, the low level ones are fantastically easy. The high level ones are very hard. And I kind of always have the idea that if you get a five dot device or you've bought one, you should get some bang for your buck. It shouldn't just be like, I have a kite. But that's me. Uh, it's it's really like, you know what? This is the age of the dark fantastic. You can do anything you want except for fly. Ignore the sky riggers. You can't fly. Ignore the dragons. You're not allowed to fly. Ignore that witch on a broom. People aren't allowed to fly. Go back to ignoring the sky riggers. I, it, <laughs> putting, putting that one out there. So what did you think of chapter five, Adam? 
Uh, other than what I mentioned, just just a few points. Yeah, I, I think it is uh, fun to take the uh, League of St. Paul and just, just fill it up with people who are trying to advance their own careers. It's like, uh, so you told me you're really pious. Oh, yeah, I, I love pies. Eat them every day. So where are you sending me? <laughs> How much gold Stuff do I like get? That. Where am I going? Yeah. <laughs> But let's see, there's, for the devices listed in this chapter, I can see how they'd be useful. And as Terry said, they weren't very innovative. They weren't terribly exciting. I mean, it's kind of fun to come across a list of devices like, oh, I could use that in this scene, or wow, I never thought of that. Instead, it's like, yeah, useful. I could get some some mileage out of this, but it, it doesn't really excite me. In the exemplars section, talking about you know notable mages who, who've been around for a while and have some, some influence and some following, I don't like the fact that they mention characters yet again that we've read about so many times. But on the other hand, it was nice how this time around they did a better job of setting up plot hooks and preparing these to be high-level NPCs in games. And so I, I guess I did like that. So I, I kind of had mixed thoughts on that. I, it just would have hit the sweet spot for me if they had made totally new NPCs that had not been mentioned before in any Sorcerer's Crusade book and then give them some plot hooks and, and make them potentially interesting. Uh, that really would have been the way to, to hammer that one home. But um, I'm glad they at least made an attempt at uh, some gameable material. But Okay, let's take a look at that appendix. I've got a bunch of notes on the appendix, but uh, Terry, let's walk us uh, through it. Sure. We get a bunch of character concepts. This is just a list of what characters could be. It has some commentary on Lower Retay Chronicles, and what now occurs to me is how nonsensical some of this is, that if people awaken with a Retay 1, they're going to have six dots and nine spheres, and they mention that they're, they're going to have one dot in each sphere, so initiates are frequently useful because they notice things. But if that person then goes on to get a second dot, they should still have those same six dots across nine spheres, but now have a couple of extra dots over time in an additional one but if you waken directly you'll frequently have three and one so like i didn't know if it wanted me to think that a character with a retay two had awoken at a retay two or started with a retay one and then gained a second dot because if it's the latter my character should still have six dots in nine spheres anyway we also get information on a high fantasy option on how to run the game which is just like yep go nuts and then we get a bunch of considerations on these are the different kind of stories that can be run this is how a chapter can be arranged and they kind of broke it up into six or seven basic uh, types which i liked uh, to say hey these are the this is the stuff that can be happening here they misspell umberto echo's name in the list of reading and we also get an illustration on page 159 which i'm simply calling jasmine's revenge and that is kind of the rest of the appendix adam what did you think about the appendix. The six chapter concepts are good inspiration, but they would I thought they would work equally well for tradition mages. I mean, they say in here, this is just for order of reason mages. It's so well tailored to them. It's like, I, I, I like them, but I could apply them to, to mystics as well. Page 154, heretical concepts. There's another dig at DND talking about how DND is all about min-maxing. I find this adorable. I, I think it is, it is just so cute how they don't understand D&D. They make the straw man. They tear him to pieces. It is very endearing. I agree people new to the game should start with Arate 1. That is a general philosophical approach for me. This is not a hard rule that I apply to all of my players. This is not something I am telling you to apply to your players. But just from a philosophical general approach to the game, I actually like uh, bringing players in, giving them Arate 1 and saying, okay, look, 
you are going to use extended roles, basically rituals, uh, to do powerful things, and you're going to really explore what those uh, level one spheres can do for you and start the game that way. Then when you climb up to Arate 2, 3, 4, and you can do more powerful effects, you have that perspective that I would prefer for you to have as a player. And so I, I actually ag agree with the author's approach in that sense. Uh, I'm not certain it should be a hard rule applied to uh, starting characters, but I, I like the thinking behind it. Page 156, uh, there's a section, The Rationale, saying initiates are more perceptive because they have a dot in six spheres. As Terry just said, I think this is actually rather silly. All Daedalians were once initiates. That means there isn't a Daedalian alive with less than six spheres that he, he knows about and can use. And I'm not ready to apply that to my world of, of Sorcerer's Crusade. Also, same page. In the first edition of the original game, players had a tendency to charge off to Erite 3 right away, presumably because you can only do cool things that way, end quote. First off, second edition of, of Mage was structured uh, in this sense the same way as first edition. So why, why doesn't it have the same problem? Also, why did I never encounter this problem? Honestly, it sounds more like a weak storyteller rather than a flaw in game design. That was that one was right out of left field for me when I read it. Quote, suddenly low Arate characters become attractive again, end quote. Okay, before revised edition, players couldn't buy backgrounds with experience points. My players wanted backgrounds and merits, so high Arate at character creation was never a problem. The author is bragging about fixing a problem I never had. Uh, let's see, same page. Troop play works especially well when the Chronicle centers around one lodge, end quote. The Wick brothers assumed when they wrote the, the first edition rulebook that mages would belong to chantries. And so here we have that thinking coming back. And because it's good, it's useful. When players are attached to a lodge or chantry or something, there are a lot of possibilities that open up to the storyteller. And so it, it's just fun to see that that thinking you know bubble up again in, in one of the mage books. Uh, I like troop style play, but there's just too much pressure in the appendix to use it. The appendix won't stop talking about it. It's just hammering about it again and again and again. So yeah, I like it, but ease up, really. Lodges and Troop play uh, states healing times will encourage players to use other characters. That was how Gary Gygax ran Dungeons & Dragons in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, healing was slow, and having healing potions everywhere came in later editions of D&D. Uh, his players had to use other characters, often in remote locations, just to get back into the campaign. And this encouraged the players to see the whole campaign, not just focus on one character's point of view. But uh, that's it for Appendix. Um, now, when we turn to uh, general thoughts for the book, uh, Terry, what's on your mind? I like this book overall. I, I am perfectly fine with a novel premise. The tricky part is the fact that this book had kind of two disparate roles. One was to introduce this new view of the order of reason and the conspiracies and nature of it, as well as what the order of reason is kind of up to, as well as kind of fill out the remaining bits that we didn't yet get on like the Kosians, the explorators, and so on. Those two can sometimes be tense with one another. I can take this material and make it a different version of the order of reason if I want, but I am I am perfectly fine with, with the premise that it has because a, a thing that frequently occurs in books is when you take a notionally antagonist group and make them a playable faction, they kind of need to change, and and I get that. So, for instance, you have uh, the Sabbat within Vampire kind of being ravening lunatics or whatever, and then we get Sabat player information, and it kind of needs to change to make it playable, and I get that, and this book does this shift. 
it makes it also clear to me how much less menacing a order of reason without the NWO feels. I like the idea that this book introduces that for an order of reason mage, magic can just kind of happen without intending it to be. That The storyteller can call for the Arite role that the character hasn't described. This book kind of sets up three types of Dedalian games. One is where it is a group of low-level order of reason members who are trying to stop one or two traditionalists. And they kind of have to use the slow accumulation of power, almost as if it's like a sorcerer game to deal with the threat. Another one is Dedalian internal politics. And another one is Dedalians versus the supernatural. The editing oddities that that just a lot of them are obvious enough that it's like, oh, wow, this just didn't get looked at. Or something came back from the printer and they didn't have time to, to see what it looked like. And that's kind of sad. It makes it easy to kind of pile on. It just kind of makes me overall mourn for the conventions we will never get explanatory information for. So uh, fingers crossed that we will get a <laughs> an M20 Sorcerer's Crusade book on the conventions that we never got. I mean, the Boggins eventually got a splat book for Changeling. Maybe if we all think real hard in the direction of the Swedes, we can get that last book approved. But yeah, those were kind of my, my overall thoughts. What did you think about the book? Well, the paradigm shift from Mage Classic to Mage Modern is stark in this book. I actually prefer previous Sorcerer's Crusade books. This is the book where revised edition exerts influence over Sorcerer's Crusade. Uh, I can see how this book was trying to show the influences leading to the technocracy of the 19th century, but for me, this was too much technocracy too soon. Uh, before I picked this book up, I had what I had what I needed for Order of Reason, and I don't think this book provided me any really missing pieces that I needed. I don't support this book's stance that mages carefully observe each other's Arate rating. I don't like treating Arate rating like a character class. I don't want to play the Order of Reason Chronicle described in this book. I want to play the one described in previous books. I, I just liked that uh, open, malleable nature of everything where a lot of influences are getting mixed together and a member of the traditions or a member of the Order of Reason could cross over to the other side and it wouldn't necessarily be you know, a, a fighting war over it. And so I, I just like that that openness, that mixing, that, I guess you could say, unclarity, the, the fuzziness, uh, which is irritating to some people, and, and I get that. But for me, it, it's actually quite appealing. This book assumes that reason mages make magic uh, conform to sleeper science and forget that, at least in early editions of mage, reason mages defined sleeper science. This book portrays the Gabrielites as crazed zealots. I never saw them that way. I saw them as reason mages who think the church is the best tool to guide society. And so, yeah, when I read the uh, three guilds of the Gabrielites there, it just seemed like, you know, bad boys from Celestial Chorus or, or, or some weird little, you know, off, you know, spin-off group that couldn't have, have stayed within the Order of Reason or something. It's like they just, they don't fit the, the puzzle that I've seen forming as we go through the Order of Reason books. But that's, that's just my view on that. If I was prepping for Sorcerer's Crusade games in the future, I, I might uh, take this book off the shelf and look through the guilds section. Some of the guilds didn't match up for me, but some were quite interesting. And having so many clearly labeled in one part of the book, it does make it handy for a uh, storyteller prepping for a game. So if I want to you know, take uh, the players to a new lodge, it's like, oh, what, what if we have some guilds here that are influential here that aren't at the lodges the players have been to before? How could I you know, make something interesting here? Yeah, I'd take this book off the shelf and flip through it. I, I think there's some good material here. That 
pretty much wraps up my, my general thoughts there. So now I am dying to know what were the quotes that just jumped off the page for you, Terry? So it is interesting that like this is mage modern inflected because the biggest thing I get whenever I read something by Brian Campbell is he does not care what edition he is in. He is writing what he wants to write. And that comes screamingly through when we read Ascension. And you could just tell he's like, revised. That's cute. I'm going to write my own thing. <laughs> so, so kind of like the F you, I'm a bus of, of authors. Still, still trying to get him as a guest. I probably shouldn't have made those comments out loud first. But anyway, so not the same kind of punchy writing that we often get. So the first one was when initiates make a retail roll to notice a phenomenon around them, they get one die to roll. This might seem weak, but it's all they need. Again, one success on a, the right of retail roll may reveal something five successes on a mundane dice pool might not. This is like why Dedalians are powerful. So that was a useful uh, encapsulation of it. Another one was... Not quite a shot at D&D, but kind of a, come on, was short of devising mass combat rules, the storyteller may allow a soldier with this effect to augment a leadership role when leading troops into battle. And then it does not bother to give combat rules on, on the group basis. But I like the short of devising mass combat rules, which ultimately we do wind up getting in the book, book Ascension. And it's like, well, yeah, this is a thing we're not going to write. No one pay attention to it. But the quote that really some things summarize things is the fact that the Dalians have access to the 10th sphere. And this came in the line, forget wands. We've got guns <laughs> done. <laughs> this is how the Ascension war shall be fought. And those were my quotes. What do we read next before we roll out, Adam? Uh, witches and pagans, we're going to look at uh, some of the uh, mystics that we have not seen very much uh, up until now in Sorcerer's Crusade, so should be interesting. Woo! So if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too, and if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We are also on Mastodon now, and the show notes can uh, help you uh, link into where you can see that. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes we prepare for you. Uh, we have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search YouTube for Mage the Podcast. All lowercase, don't sweat the colon. You'll find us. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. Terry, can you share the names of our executive producers? I would be glad to. Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Benjamin Mendelow, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Neil Patterson, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle McHale, and Oracle the Crew of Erebus. Additionally, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Guy Ken Stewart, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, and Archmaster Patrick McNamara. Also thanks to Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Der Dennis Osborne, I always say Derek there, Eli Levenger, Fragger Rock, George Laura, Eobel, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Bryn, John Magnuson, Julian Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Pearl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Rachel Grace, Rolf Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H, Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Thank you for your support. Well, if you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby.
Go change reality, but only if it's not going to look too vulgar until you become aware of a vast Byzantine conspiracy that is only revealed to you if you're in certain corners of Europe at a late time. And always remember, Jacob von Riesman is secretly a vampire. Bye. Uh, I think my basement by volume is currently one-third drywall dust. And period- <laughs> periodically I get a, uh, I accumulate enough scourge that I get a, uh, a minor scourgling of, to appear seemingly within my nose. So it's like, what's that white powder on your nose? It's not nearly as exciting as you think it is. <laughs> I have vacuumed. Don't it, Terry. Yeah, I have vacuumed this place. I do not have access to time three. I have vacuumed <laughs> this place like seven times and still like I'll run my hand along a surface and it'll look like I just like punched a ghost or decided to get into a snowball fight and entirely using confectioner sugar. Anyway. Blah.